Please turn to Psalm chapter or Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you up on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. They trust in chariots and they in horses, but we remember the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. June 6, 1944. You're on a landing boat heading for the coast of Normandy. It's your day of trouble, D-Day, and it has been coming. You're staring at the faces of your comrades, many of whom you will never see again. And then your eyes turn to a thick metal door right in front of you. When this door swings open, it's time for you to jump. Jump into the jaws of death. Because you are wading through deep waters with your rifle above your head under a relentless hailstorm of bullets. And if you are lucky and you reach the beach in one piece, you're still a sitting duck, naked, exposed to enemy fire from high ground. And on this historic day, you may well be among the nearly 30,000 casualties. The staggering cost of establishing a beachhead in Europe not counting those who had their jaws shot off or their limbs shot off or sustained other horrible injuries that are marked for life. But the soldiers who sat in those attack vessels in front of that metal door that suddenly swung open, they knew what was coming although no one could prepare them for it. But they stormed the shores of Normandy because they conquered their fear, because they calculated, they reckoned that failure is not an option. This sacrifice, even if it turns out to be the ultimate sacrifice, is in order, it is necessary. Because eyewitnesses tell us that when they looked across the sea 
and they saw an armada of boats all the way to the horizon. This is what they thought. We cannot fail. Well, David speaks of a day of trouble. You hear it in verse 1 of Psalm 20. Once again, it was time for the king to lead his armies into battle. David, we often forget this, was a man who had blood on his hands. He was a warrior king. He joined his armies on the battlefields of Canaan. And this burden to lead his people and to be an example to his people, it weighed heavily on him. And so the enemies, they could hear them. They were boasting in their horses and in their war chariots while David was limited to foot soldiers and probably outnumbered. So David goes to the sanctuary to pray while the people assemble in the courtyard to intercede for the king. And you can hear their prayer here in verses 1 through 5, interceding for the king. But then in 6 through 9, both king and people suddenly emerge with praises on their lips because somehow they know that God grants them victory even before a single arrow has been shot. They say, failure is not an option. We cannot fail. It is this trust in the face of overwhelming odds that you must ponder when you read this psalm. How can we discover it? How can we gain it? What makes for this kind of faith? And how can we be as certain as the voices that ring out in the stirring psalm 20? David wrote it with three simple ideas shaping the internal logic of this song. The day of trouble becomes the day of prayer, becomes the day to remember. And at the end of this chain of three links, you discover the confidence that we seek, that we want, that we need. Let's begin with the day of trouble. Let's eat the nasty stuff first, as some of you do, along with me. Makes for good astronomical uh, policy. Start with the nasty stuff, and then we move on to our tidbits and enjoy them. The day of trouble. Well, you all know that we are masters of worry. Worrying conjures a bad outcome from the start of a thing. And it wants to shield us from this bad outcome. We want to avoid the bad outcome, hence we worry. Of course, worrying doesn't accomplish anything, and it is easy to detect worrying in others. It's not so easy to detect in yourself 
for sometimes you even project your own worries onto other people. And you think that that's their problem. It really is your problem, not theirs. In any case, anxiety feeds on bad experiences and projects them forward. That's how worrying works. Now, with faith and hope, it is the exact opposite. Here, you begin with good thoughts and good experiences to extend them into the future, leaving you in a different place above your fears. Now, fear of what might happen and fear of what might be is all too common. And sometimes fear is even institutionalized. Twenty years ago, that's not long in this world, twenty years ago the Japanese government issued an official apology to its citizens suffering from leprosy. Until 1996, if you can believe it, lepers in Japan were forced to live in total isolation in the so-called sanitaria. Even after a complete cure, prisoners for life, condemned without a trial. And having committed no crime, And the fear of infection, the fear of leprosy, is still lingering over the Japanese population because the government for many decades systematically stoked the fear in an effort to ban the disease. Now, there are many things to fear, and there are also many fear-mongers in the world. Many things to fear, many people who stoke fear. Maybe you are one of them. But when David ponders this day of trouble, and he calls it that way, he knows that God appoints it. And therefore, like it or not, there's no way around it. It is necessary. God appoints it, and not merely to scare us out of our wits, but for a very different reason. You know that Jesus taught us to address our Father in heaven saying, Father, Father, lead us not into temptation, lead us not into trial, but deliver us from evil. But this prayer would not be necessary, and Jesus wouldn't have to teach us to pray this way if Jesus did not also know that upon occasion and from season to season, your Father is pleased to lead you into trial, not to destroy you, but to deliver you. David knew this when he wrote this psalm. And uh, in that sense, he was already over the hill. He was already looking beyond the battlefield that he was facing. And you ought to know it too. We all do know it. In fact, James 1.2 says, Count it all joy, brothers, sisters, when you meet with various trials. 
Yeah, why? Why should I count it joy when I face trials? Make it as simple as I can, because your father wants you to see. He doesn't need to see it. He knows what is in us. He wants you to see that you really trust him. Yes, he wants you to see that you really trust him. And then to extend this experience into the future. Step by step, day by day, and from season to season. Thus building faith and hope according to the gospel. God appointed the day of Psalm 20, giving his people an opportunity to practice this exemplary trust that you now see in the finished product for us to ponder. And God says to all of us, you listen to this, God says to all of us, you, you call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Well, how do you glorify God in the day of trouble? It is as simple as this. Every child can do this. Call on the name of the Lord. Glorify him. And in calling on the name of the Lord, show some trust, have some faith. Glorify God. But how will you do this without a day of trouble? But take soccer for an example. You all know that we love soccer. I do. Every team knows how to win, if they can. Every team knows how to win. Every team knows how to celebrate. It's not hard to do. Nobody needs to teach you how to celebrate a victory. But the character of a team is revealed when things get tough. And no wonder, no wonder, Jesus himself, the captain of our salvation, was made perfect through what he suffered in the day of trouble. So this is no strange thing, nothing unheard of, not even something that we shouldn't be familiar with. No, 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 no. And this leads to the second movement of this psalm, a day of prayer. And it is like a reflex. Yes, it is like a reflex if you walk by faith. Well, who do you call on the day of trouble? Do you have someone to call in the day of trouble? And you see the day of trouble soliciting prayer, drawing out prayer in the frame that David has created skillfully. And he created this effect by repeating the crucial phrase, in the day, in the day. He says in verse 1, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And then in verse 9, he repeats this phrase, may he answer us in the day we call. 
It's the same phrase. The day of trouble is the day we call. Misery teaches, doesn't it? Misery teaches even to call on God. Now, if you think that you need no prayer because you're living the good times, you are not only a fool, but the day of trouble will change your mind when you have nothing left but to pray. And how many do you think prayed in the landing boats off the coast of Normandy before the jump into the deep water? And when God's people pray, and I mean pray without pretense, pray as we are, pray the way we feel, naked, fearful, awkward, insecure, when all of your masks come off before your Father in heaven, something extraordinary happens. And again, you see it in Psalm 20. For trouble calls for prayer. And prayer becomes its own answer. You hear what the psalmist says at this break? I know. Suddenly, the number changes. It's no longer we We, we, first person plural. It's first person singular. And the psalmist says, now I know that God saves. He knows because he has been engaged in prayer. Some of your strongest conviction as a Christian are formed in prayer. Prayer is its own answer because the Holy Spirit confirms His truth to your heart when you call on His name in the day of trouble. And even if you've never called on Him, if you come to Him today, He will come to you. A pastor, I heard this story, had a visitor, a man in his prime. He was successful made a very good living. He was well-positioned in life, married, children. Many people would have envied him. But his request that he brought to this man that he never seen before to the minister baffled him and touched his heart. He had only three months left to live, doctors had told him. And now he had come to ask for help, to face imminent death, and a rendezvous with the Almighty. And it was hard to believe, because the man looked good, and healthy, and strong. But there was something something in his demeanor that reminded the minister of the centurion. Remember the centurion who came to Jesus asking him to save his sick servant because he was dying. And he said to Jesus, don't even come to my house. I know that Jews 
don't come to the houses of Gentiles. You don't need to come to my house. Just say the word and he'll be well. Because I know how the chain of command works. If I say to my soldier, you go and do this, it'll be done. You just say the word. And Jesus was visibly touched. And he marveled at the faith of this man, at the openness of this man's heart, open to the power of God that the centurion saw working in Jesus, the man of God. Whatever else he thought of him, he had that kind of faith that never doubted. And so Jesus turned to his disciples and said, let me tell you something. I have seen no such faith in Israel among God's people. And the man who came to the minister, he had never had any interest in God. He lived a secular life like so many of us. He lived a secular life, and all this was now to change. And it happened. They met frequently praying for forgiveness. And they prayed for peace. And they prayed for comfort for the family and for the children and for the wife. And they prayed for strength. And they prayed for the assurance of eternal life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And after three months, just as it had been diagnosed, the man died. But in hope of the victory that Jesus gives you, So you see here in Psalm 20 that prayer is its own answer. Prayer confirms God's truth in your heart. Conviction is formed in prayer because the Holy Spirit confirms His truth, the good news, to your heart. When you cry to Him like a child in the day of trouble. And you may well ask the question, what truth is it that we're talking about? What is the conviction? Well, it is not a conviction or a truth about you because that would not be a source of comfort. It is the truth about God's name. And this is the third and final movement of this psalm. The day of trouble becomes the day of prayer and the day of prayer becomes the day to remember God's name. A day to remember that God's name is protection. Verse 1. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Set you up on high, on a tower where you are out of reach of anyone who wants to take you. Verse 5. In the name of our God, we set up our banners. Verse 7, we trust in the name of Yahweh, our God. Three times. This is the main theme of this psalm. The name of God is invoked in the day of trouble, in the day of prayer. The name of God is remembered. And you know, the name of God is like a storybook. The name of God tells a story. That, by the way, is true of all the great names of history. Names that we remember for good or for ill. Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte, and Frank. Names that we know from the history books. And each of these names activates a story behind it. 
and it is just so with God's name. He made his name known as Yahweh, God of Israel, when he delivered his people. And the name of God is tied to his deliverance. More than anything else, you need to know the name of God for his deliverance. Forget about everything else. You need to know the name of God for his deliverance. And since then, it has been so. And when Israel had spurned God ten times in the wilderness during the Exodus, God was minded to destroy them, but to teach us a lesson. The Bible records how Moses interceded for the people On what basis? Their righteousness? Their record? Their goodness? No, on the basis of God's name. And Moses said to God, No, I understand these people are stiff-necked and rebellious, but if you kill them like one man, then the nations who heard of your name, they will say, Yeah, didn't we say it? Yahweh wasn't able to fulfill his promise. He couldn't bring them to the land of promise, and so he slew them in the wilderness. God relented. For if his redemptive plan should fail, his name is on the line. And he conceived the plan of redemption for his name. In the first place. Therefore, also 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22 says, God will not abandon his people for his great name's sake. For the Lord was pleased to make you a people for his own possession. And he wanted the world to know this. Failure is not an option with him. And It is almost like a father who has signed a document with his name that makes him liable for his children that keep running away from home, breaking things, messing things up, destroying things. They get into trouble of every possible kind, but the father has put his name under a document and the name guarantees your hope. It guarantees your hope. And his name is invested in your life. As we saw this morning in Sire's baptism, his name has been put upon you. His name is invested in his plan for your life, and indeed in his plan for the whole world, for all of creation. Again, First Samuel says in many words, meaning failure is not an option. Yahweh will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. He was pleased to make you his own, and that's how it will be. God's plan, by the way, is very simple. If you want to put it in one sentence, it's this. Victory through my king. I grant victory through my king. That's God's plan. And that has been his plan from eternity. 
And this is why you hear the people pray here in this psalm. Do you hear what they say? May God fulfill all the king's plans. Well, what did they know about the king's plans? They knew that David didn't conjure them. They knew that David didn't think up his own plans and pursued them to the death. No, God had put these plans on the heart of the king so that the plans of God became the plans of the king so that the king wanted what God wanted for his people. They were God's plans, God's desires, and that therefore they would be fulfilled. And you see then that the theology of Psalm 20 is the theology of Psalm 2, where God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It is almost as though God says, what are you going to do about this, you nations? Hmm? Now, what are you going to do? Try what you will. You will not succeed. I have done it, and that's how it will be. And then you hear the son, the king himself, joining the conversation, and he says, let me tell you something. I'm going to tell you about God's decree. This is what he has decreed. The Lord said to me, the king, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Now ask me. You pray to me. Pray to me. Ask me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is God's plan. Victory through my king. Period. Basta. And so this is the source of confidence. David and his people remember God's name. And his name has a history. It has a story with his people. And it guarantees victory through his chosen king. So... To the battlefield, shall we? To the battlefield. David remembers. And this is his strategy for the fight. It's marvelously thrown into relief in verses 3 and 7. I can't explain this to you now. We don't have the time, but they correspond to each other. And first we read in verse 7, They trust in chariots. And they in horses. But we, and he uses the word remember, we remember the name of the Lord our God. Now the enemy knows that numbers are in their favor. They outnumber Israel. And they know that superior equipment is on their side too, guaranteeing victory. But while they put their trust in cavalry and war chariots, David's strategy is to remember God's name. And now verse 3. And to sacrifice in God's name. As the people pray, may God remember all your sacrifices, burnt offerings. This is an act of worship when few people would want to worship. It wouldn't feel good to go to the sanctuary and there offer a sacrifice. The enemy is at the gates. They're already 
doing their chants. And their numbers are rising, and, and they draw up an array for the battle, and it doesn't look good. There is necessity. There is the day of trouble. This is not a time to worship. We don't have time for this. This is how we tend to think. This is not the time to worship. But this is David's strategy. And um, he offers an act of worship. He offers sacrifice in the face of overwhelming odds. And David's sacrifices are no magic wand that you wave and it works under any circumstances. For you know from the history of the Old Testament that when God's people turned away from God, they tasted defeat. And they were routed before their enemies. Not even the Ark of the Covenant could save them. But when they turned to him in repentance, when they turned to him with their whole heart, God heard them and delivered them. And, and this is what you read this morning in 1 Kings chapter 8. If your people go out to battle, and if they pray to the place where you have put your name, and if they pray to the Lord, then hear from heaven and maintain their cause. But David, who does this, David does better than even he knows or understands. For on the one hand, his offerings in the day of trouble, they take you back to the critical night of Israel's birth. And I think that David himself went back to that place and time when he offered the sacrifice in the face of overwhelming odds. When Israel sacrificed a lamb to smear the blood on their doorposts. And David remembered that God broke Egypt's back that night and delivered Israel by blood. But what he didn't know or what he couldn't see, and certainly not clearly, is that this was in foresight of the greater king, as one of his sons, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ bore God's plan on his heart. If ever a king did, it was he. He bore the name of the Father and his plan on his heart. He was zealous for the house and the glory of God more than anything else. He bore God's plan on his heart, and he went to war, and he conquered the world. And his strategy was not to bring an animal to a temple. No, but to make himself the lamb, a sacrifice that he offered in the presence of the Father and one that secures God's favor for us for all time, one that God will regard with favor. And this is the reason why God has now given him the name. It is by his name that we must be saved, and it is his name that we remember in the Lord's Supper. But unlike David... There was no one to support. 
It wasn't like it is here with a congregation of people behind the king, interceding for the king, calling on the name of God. There was no one to help him. Oh yes, he called his disciples to watch with him in prayer. They didn't show up. They were not there. Little did they know what was happening. And it was appointed. That day of trouble was appointed just this way. So that as the true king of Israel, through whose name alone, God grants victory. Jesus faced the day of trouble alone. And Jesus conquered death and hell for us. And so we are given these words to say, now I know, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. And because he has saved him and seated him on his right hand, now I know that God is with us. Come what will, failure is not an option. If God is for us, well, then who can be against us? There is no weapon that will succeed against the name of Christ and us in him. Is there? Yeah, but if you say, yeah, Martin, I don't know. <laughs> you don't know what I have done. How can I call on God and expect him to listen to me? I don't know. Well, do not limit God. His arm is not too short that it cannot save. Who do you think you are that God couldn't save you? This is precisely why Jesus died and is risen. His blood washes you clean when you turn to him. And remember, my friend, that anxiety and worrying feed on bad experiences and stoke the fear. But faith and hope extend a good story into the future. And you have one. Your story is that you died when Christ died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Basta. And you know what hidden with Christ in God means? Why should you hide something so that it may not be found and messed with? Hidden means that um, your salvation, your victory has been removed from the reach of forces that want to take it from you. It's off the market. It's not up for the taking. It's not for negotiation. No one will be able to find it. If they seek it, they will not find it. And victory, therefore, is certain. Your life is hidden. And God keeps it safe. D-Day marked the landing of the Allied troops in Europe, and they took courage in numbers. 
they took courage in the many when they looked out over the sea and they saw boats as far as the eye can see. They said to themselves, failure is not an option. We cannot fail. Well, we recall a day when God was in Christ. When he landed on earth to face the day of trouble alone and to set in motion a campaign in which failure is not and never has been an option. And our hope is not in the many. Our hope is not in numbers. Many boats, many people. Our hope is not in many, but in the one, only one. That makes it easy, doesn't it? If you know him, yes, it does. And so also V-Day or Victory Day, the day of final victory, is backed and guaranteed by his name that the Father has exalted to save us. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command. And in his train will come the heavenly armies. And there will be the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise. How is it with you and me? If you trust in anything, and everyone trusts in something, if you trust in anything, you will collapse and fall, as David says here. You will collapse and fall. But if you trust in nothing but Christ, you will rise and stand upright. For victory is in the name of God's chosen king. You remember it. And take courage. And here is your confidence. He will not fail. He will not fail you. He cannot Failure is not an option with him, so you stay by his side. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this encouraging psalm that remembers your name in prayer in the day of trouble. And if you should send the day of trouble into our lives, a day that we wouldn't choose, and let us Take these three steps. Let the day of trouble become the day of prayer and the day to remember the name of your King in whom failure is not an option. And so we strengthen ourselves in the Lord. We put no confidence in the flesh. And while they or some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, we remember the name of the Lord, our God. Amen.